The opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Good morning, everyone. Welcome again to another edition of uh, Boomer Generation Radio, coming to you from the studios of WWDB AM 860 here in beautiful Greater Philadelphia. It's a little rainy today, a little messy, and our guest, uh, Dr. Judy Curtin, was the victim of the transportation road gods here in Philadelphia, so she's going to be calling in, and I'm sure she's on the phone, and we're going to be getting to her in a moment right after this message from our friends over at Kendall. Hi, this is Kendall staff member Sheila Sylvester. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio is brought to you by Kendall Outreach. Kendall Outreach serves the field of aging by raising public awareness of important health care issues of older adults. And it provides education and training in the development and implementation of comprehensive approaches to safe, individualized, long-term care practices. Kendall Outreach has been sharing Kendall's approach to quality care with consumers, advocates, providers, government agencies, and related organizations since 1989. To learn more, visit KendallOutreach.org. Good morning. Welcome back to our first segment here on Boomer Generation Radio today. Uh, again, coming to you from the studios of WWDB AM 860. And we're streaming live on WWDBAM.com. And just a reminder that you can reach the show on Boomer Generation Radio at gmail.com. And like us on the Boomer Generation Radio Facebook page. And uh, the podcasts of the shows are always going to be available on uh, www.jewishsacredaging.com. All or most of the Boomer Generation Radio shows are archived on that website. And we're very pleased to welcome Dr. Judy Curtin, a doctor of audiology uh, from ABC Hearing here in suburban Philadelphia. Uh, Dr. Curtin, I hope you're there. I certainly am. Hey, okay, great. Well, <laughs> and here's... I'm warm and I'm not wet. Well... <laughs> So one of the mystery of life questions is in, in, in our area, in, in greater Philadelphia, when it rains, why does all the traffic stop? I, I, I just doesn't, I don't, I don't understand it, but you know, this is one of the great philosophical questions of living in our area. It just is crazy. Well, I'm, I'm glad you're safe and everything is okay. And thank you for, for finding think, shelter and, uh, and a line to call us <laughs> in on. I think the reason the traffic stops is because the green gets so much prettier and the, the grays and the contrast and the smells are all so pretty. Yeah, well, that's one way of looking at it. I don't think I share that. <laughs> I have another opinion, but probably can't can't discuss it on radio. <laughs> I think the the guy behind the the guy behind the booth, the glass there, would like throw things at me. Anyway, um, we want to talk a little bit. Um, first of all, welcome back to the show. I know you were here a couple of years ago. And Thank you. I appreciate it. We. Um, this is part of a of an off and on series that we've done here on Boomer Generation Radio, dealing with aspects of health, and specifically today because you uh, you're a, a doctor of audiology, we want to talk a little bit about something that obviously impacts baby boomers uh, a lot, and that is hearing. And one subject I want to jump right into because um, we've had experiences with my own family. Uh, and, and this is what my mom used to call ringing in her ears, but I think there's a technical term for it, tinnitus or tinnitus. Am, am I, I'm probably mispronouncing that. What is it and um, how prevalent is it and, 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 and how does one deal with it? Well, first of all, 
um, the pronunciation of tinnitus and tinnitus are equally weighted. So depending on who you are and where you're from, you'll call it either tinnitus or tinnitus. Okay. And it refers generally to any noises in the ear. It's not specific to ringing. It can be kind of a shower noise. It can be a cricket noise. It can be a humming. You know, it has many varieties um, of sound. But any sound that's um, that's not elicited by an outside source is referred to as tinnitus. Any, any sound that you hear within your body that isn't elicited from an outside source is referred to as tinnitus. Where does this come from, I mean, and how prevalent is it? It's very prevalent. Um, it, I would say, especially over the 60, 65-year-old, 70% of people with hearing loss have tinnitus. Um, over 50 million people have, have it, and most people have experienced it um, in a fleeting way. What, what do you mean? Uh, but uh, they might experience um, a, a high-pitched sound and then a feeling of dullness in their ear just for a few seconds, and then it's restored. Nobody really knows what causes that, mm. uh, but it's not clinically significant, and it happens to enough of the population. So um, what about, is it like, can it become chronic? I mean, constant? Yes. Well, there's there's different, you know, types. So there's that type. The chronic type would be uh, something that occurs about twice a week, maybe lasting for five minutes, and that would be considered chronic. And then there's permanent tinnitus. A permanent tinnitus is heard all the time, and it to be established as permanent, it really has to last about a year. Hmm. And you don't know, did they know where this comes, is it genetic or just is? Well, that's really interesting because I really don't know the answer to whether it's genetic or not. I do know that um, some people have talked about their parent having it, and um, the, the causes are multifactorial, and um, and some of them we know, <laughs> not all of them. Um, but as far as the ge- genetic component, I really don't know. Um, I would have to explore that more. It's not something that I've heard of genetically. But right, it doesn't right. mean that it's not. No. So, so th- th- this is this 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 condition appears in people usually. Oh, like you said, over the age of fifty-five, sixty-five. Sixty-five. Yeah. I mean, it's high. But two million people suffer debilitating, but over fifty million suffer from tinnitus. All right. So one. Then- so the experience of tinnitus is not uncommon, but it, it comes in degrees of uh, severity. And even when it's permanent, doesn't mean that it's debilitating. Okay, but so we can ex- right. we 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 could then extrapolate and say because now the baby boomers, all of whom are over fifty, and the, the huge first wave is between sixty-five and seventy, that mm-hmm. that that if there if people starting to experience this, that, that it's not unusual then. It's not unusual, and that's the most important thing to remember. I mean, I think tinnitus itself. Uh, can frighten people, and when you be, you know, it's a kind of fear of the unknown, right? And that fear can cause, you know, secondary problems. For example, that end up becoming primary. For example, tinnitus is not usually all that loud. Mm-hmm. 
when you do a me- measurement of how um, how loud is it uh, the, this disturbing tinnitus, and when you measure it, it's really not that physically loud. Loudness is certainly a psychological perception, um, but the presence of it can uh, frighten people. They might think it's oh, more sure. serious than it is. And I'm, there's a small majority, a small minority, excuse me, that that um, where it is a serious thing, and it has to be examined. But the treat, but um, but most often, uh, the etiology or the cause of it is not um, serious. So, so, so somebody may be listening, and, and they say, "Well, I have this, or I've begun to experience this." What what does this person do? I would first, um, I would call an audiologist or an ear, ear, nose, and throat mm-hmm. person who would refer you to an audiologist anyway. You can't really do much until you have a good case history and a uh, and an audiological evaluation. Because right. so often the underlying etiology um, is uh, a hearing loss, especially noise-induced. I mean, if you have noise exposure... You know, the uh, tinnitus that comes from noise exposure can be very aggravating. Is, so uh, am I, uh, is there a direct relationship between exposure to uh, extraordinary loud noise over a long period of time and the development of this uh, condition, or is it totally just random? Well, like I said, over 70% have hearing loss. So it's it's a high percentage of people who have hearing loss have also the component of tinnitus. But it doesn't mean it's disturbing. Mm-hmm. It's some, for some people, it's only obvious when they're in quiet. So so the the treatment then automatically, from what I'm hearing you say, if someone who is listening to, to this is experiencing this condition, um, the first stop is, yeah, I better get to an audiologist and get tested and get a get a sense of really what's going on, correct? Right. Find out. You know, the biggest fear is the fear of the unknown. And um, the best part about uh, tinnitus treatment um, is that it's all about empowering you to to manage the mostly manage your reaction to the problem and, um, and identify and make sure there's no underlying medical uh, cause that can be treated. So, and what is what what is the basic treatment for this? Mostly tinnitus. You know, if you have tinnitus, you've got tinnitus. And it has to become your friend. So how do you take your enemy that you're afraid of and make it your friend? Is <laughs> really what the treatment is all about. And it's um, it's so it's really you're learning to manage and to work with your tinnitus from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, it, so it's really a three prong treatment. Depend, you know, we're talking about different levels. Sometimes once people. Um, talk to somebody and they find out what is um, what the tinnitus is and they're relieved that in a, once you have the knowledge sometimes that brings relief and the, and then educating that it is true it is there you know it's um, harmless and if it's distracting you sometimes just playing background music if it's bothering you because most of the time it bothers you in quiet playing soothing music or some sort of music that's comfortable for you, um, we'll take care of it. We'll mask it. 
So there are like low-level ways to handle it. You know, sometimes if it's a hearing loss, hearing aids today are so phenomenal. I mean, there's a 90% satisfaction rate with hearing aids today. And most hearing aids have tinnitus management programs in them if you even need it. Right. And that management program would also be kind of a counter sound that masks the tinnitus um, so that it's not so prominent. So the, the, you mentioned something before we take a break that, that you have to make sure you're tested just to make sure that this is not a, a sign or an indication of another medical issue. Could, could right. you just very say what what would other medical issues manif- be manifest with with the, the discovery of tinnitus? Well, that would be uh, somatic tinnitus, and a lot of the vascularization system. Uh, the, the blood flows close to the ear or within the ear. So you can have a pulsatile tinnitus, which is really following your heartbeat. You can have... Um, is that when you hear your heartbeat in your ear? Well, that yeah, and that can be I mean, caused by patch, from your eustachian tube being open. Um, so a lot of times when um, somebody overexerts them or exercises, they walk up, of, you know, they're carrying a bunch of stuff walking up, but they'll, they'll hear, almost hear their heartbeat. That's normal. Yes, yes, that's, that's normal. Um, you can have um, musculature problems that are uh, pinching a nerve and causing tinnitus. You right. can have, uh, you know, all sorts of skeletal issues. You can have um, even earwax mm-hmm. or a middle ear pathology, high blood pressure. A lot of them can cause uh-huh. or aggravate tinnitus. We're so they all with... have to be Go ahead. looked at. We're speaking with Dr. Judy Curtin, an audiologist, a doctor of audiology, and from ABC Hearing here in suburban Philadelphia. And we'll be back with uh, Dr. Curtin. We want to talk a little bit about um, expanding this concept of hearing loss with hearing aids, because you mentioned that, and I know this is an issue for for many baby boomers and the technology that you mentioned is changing. I want to come back and, and talk a little, ask you some questions about that. And we'll do that right after this message from our friends down the down the road here at Kendall. Hi, this is Kendall resident Harry Hammond. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio is brought to you by Kendall, a system of not-for-profit communities and services that advocates for and empowers older adults to reach their full potential. Kendall is committed to working with others as we together transform the experience of aging. To learn more about Kendall, that's K-E-N-D-A-L, visit discoverkendall.org or call toll-free 888 888- Seven five nine zero one two eight. Welcome back to our first segment here of Boomer Generation Radio this morning, and uh, again coming to you from WWDB AM eight sixty here in Greater Philadelphia, streaming live on WWDBAM.com. We're with Dr. Judy Curtin, an audiologist, and we're talking about tinnitus or tinnitus, and um, we want to move in, Judy, to. This um, you, you alluded to this about the gradual hearing loss that may impact baby boomers. How prevalent is hearing loss amongst people as they age? Is this something that, that you just better expect to have happen? Well, I think I told you two years ago, and you were stunned. It's inevitable. Inevitable, and I'm still. I got news for you. I'm still stunned. As hair going gray. <laughs> if you have hair. <laughs> So it, you, you can't escape it. I mean, I, I'm trying to think of if I, I remember one person, and she was 90, and her hearing was excellent. Wow. But just because you have, um, so you're going to have a change in hearing. 
how uh, that change in hearing impacts your communication is going to vary <clears throat> excuse me by the individual a lot so some people's communication needs aren't that great some people who you know relish uh high level conversation they're going to want to grasp every word right. and so they're going to have communication needs that are greater than somebody who's you know not like that so talk to me about the hearing aids i i they've come a long way i imagine the technology of them the uh, the price of them the I guess the the fashion of them. I mean, they're what's well, what's what's the all, what's sexy. the latest? They're well, what? first of all, they're sexy little things now. <laughs> hearing aid. I want to write that quote down. Hearing aids <laughs> are sexy. Yes. All right. You know, uh, you they're want to a ex- lot more sexy than saying what? You want to <laughs> all the time. <laughs> you want to explain that one to me? <laughs> um, first of all, they're very um, discreet now, and usually the only people that notice. The hearing aids of today are people who are thinking about purchasing one, and then it's in your cognition, and you start noticing that person in front of you or that person in back of you. But for the most part, um, it's uh, so many of my clients are wearing hearing aids, and their families don't know. Really? Yes. All the families know is that something happened, and that person is happier or more responsive. I usually tell my clients, you know, it's, at least in the first couple of weeks, don't tell anybody, and I have a reason for that. But I tell them that, and inevitably people say, well, what happened? Did you get your hair done? Did, you know, did you get a raise? Did you do this? Did... They know something changed. There's been a, a positive shift in that person's behavior, but they don't relate, relate it to hearing. Is hearing loss just just popped into my head because when you're talking, is it more prevalent for men or women, or is it pretty much equally distributed? Well, it shows up differently, but it's more prevalent, uh, I would say, with men. But now that women are in the workforce longer and they're subjected to more uh, noise and more um, chemicals and things like that, um, it may be equalizing out, but everything I've ever read, it's more prevalent in men. Women have a different type of hearing loss sometimes. In, in what do you mean? <laughs> that would be getting into too much detail. <laughs> I, I know, sometimes I know that have, some have selective hearing, but so do men. So, uh. <laughs> well, as soon as you hear that uh, term, selective hearing, yeah. you're almost guaranteed that there's a hearing loss that's due to the aging process, um, which basically allows people to hear the vowels very clearly and miss a lot of the consonant sounds. So if I said to you, how are you? You kind of know that I said, how are you? Right. Even though I didn't put any consonants in that at all. Right. And then if I said, you have no clue as to what I said because it was a low probability sentence. I said E equals MC squared. So selective attention has to do with your ability to figure out what the sentence is, even though a lot of details in that sentence are missing. So the the I'm going to go back to the hearing aid thing too. The how the the price of these things I would imagine have also come down and made. Let's talk about the price of hearing aids. Okay. Right. Hearing aids are marked up. Marked up. Yes. I mean, I, in our own practice, we mark up our hearing aids. And, and a good percentage of that markup is our work. 
and define um, that. What do you, what do you mean your work? You mean ma- managing well, the placement and and tailoring it to each individual client? Yes. When people um, come to us for a hearing aid, I have to back them up because they're really coming for restoration of communication, and that the hearing aid is the bridge to communication. It's not the only thing. The the person, who, the consumer, sees it as the appliance. You know, like you buy a hearing aid, you put it on, and that's it. Mm-hmm. That is so far from accurate. Um, you have to have, um, to get compliance and success with restoring communication, you have to have a high level of trust, a high level of communication with the person that's your provider who is able to troubleshoot the tremendous variety of situations that a person is in. For example, a grandchild whispering in one ear and then a you know, 13-year-old teenage girl being hysterical on the other side. That hearing aid has to manage both situations and sometimes simultaneously. Right. You have to know your engineering. You have to know your psychology. You have to know your... Uh, the physical reaction, because each person's body physically reacts to sound differently, even if my audiogram, which is our measure of hearing, looks exactly the same. So it's, it's almost as if uh, buying people think of buying a hearing aid as buying your hip replacement. You don't buy a hip replacement. You buy a surgeon who uses the hip replacement. And it's the same with hearing aids. You're buying the provider you're buying the provider and you're buying the hearing aid. Now, you can bypass all of that and buy them online, but I'm telling you, people have come to our practice and they were surprised at what they were supposed to be hearing mm-hmm. uh, are, are most... once they were fit properly. And it, 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 if it were easy, they'd be really cheap. And, go ahead. Are most of these covered by insurance? Insurance companies cover uh, partial for some people. Um, sometimes the insurance companies uh, farm out their list to discount houses, so it's not an insurance thing. It's just a third party uh, intervening, and the discounts sometimes are um, significant, but often they're not that significant. And I would imagine that I know very I know nothing about hearing aids. I would imagine right. And the other the other thing is too, they pick who they're going to provide the services for. So it's not based on the quality of service. Right. But that's so everything's a give up and get. You can get some coverage whether you get the quality that you need. That's a whole other question. And I would imagine that that also relates to the quality level of the individual hearing aid that runs the gamut from basic to really, you know, top of the line. And is there right. really that much difference? Huge. Really? But it's also the hearing aid that you get is based on your need. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the person who, like a, a mother, needs great hearing aids because she has to listen to all her children in rooms throughout the house. Otherwise, she has to be with them all the time. Right. You know, and like I said, they have their teenage meltdowns, their two-year-old meltdowns, they're whispering, they're this, they're that. Um, so if they can afford it, the highest level is best. But a lot of people don't need that level. That's why the evaluation is so critical as to figure out what level you need. You can get a very good hearing aid 
in the um, entry range now. A very good hearing aid. And, and, and um, but it depends the, on how it's fit, and it depends on um, how it depends on the reaction. Like you have to, you have to go to your provider with your list of I call them the list of moans. You know, my job is to their job is to moan, and my job is to get them to as close to perfect as I can. So it's a partnership of you know, you tell me this, I translate it to either psychological, you know, like behavioral or um, or um, electronic, and we have to find that balance. Sometimes I have to treat the whole family. Why? Because, well, if the hearing loss is significant enough, and even with the best technology, say somebody can only understand 25% of everything that's said fit with the best top-of-the-line hearing aids, well, that, you know, my job is not ending there. That's uh, the beginning. Of how to restore communication, and there's lots of ways of doing that. Uh, we're just running, starting to run out of time for this segment. Let me ask you one real basic, basic question. Um, how often should a person of our age, a baby boomer, let's just say, get a, a hearing checkup? How often? Um, I would say that people should start at 55 and every five years. I think once you have a problem, um, it should be more frequent. Um, I do find that once people get hearing aids, the progression of the loss seems to slow down tremendously. And you know, hearing aids not only provide communication, they are an incredible stress reliever. Oh, I know. Yes, and I'm sure. stress, as we know, is very toxic to, the envir- to, to you, to your environment, to your personal relationships, but your internal relationship with your body. So I think that's part of the reason that the hearing loss seems to slow down once you get hearing aids. So it, um, is that a that's not, anyway, we've been speaking with Dr. Judy Curtin, a doctor of audiology and uh, from ABC Hearing in suburban uh, Philadelphia. And I think you're also affiliated with Westchester University. Am I, am I correct? Yes, I'm, I've been on the faculty for 16 years. So thank you very much again for your return visit. And I'm glad you made it to a phone safe and sound uh, <laughs> up the roads and, um, and really giving us a, a quick overview of uh, tinnitus or tinnitus, depending upon the neighborhood in which you live. And also a little bit of a primer on hearing aids, which I think is extremely important for many people. So, Dr. Curtin, thank you very much. Have a have a good day. Stay 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 safe and stay dry too uh, in this crazy okay, weather. And if you ever are in the area, stop in and I'll see what I'll evaluate you anytime. Uh oh, uh oh. Now that we've learned that hearing aids are sexy, it uh, you may have, you may have transformed an entire industry. But thank you very much. Well, I hope. So. <laughs> okay, take care. Be well. Bye, Richard. Bye-bye. Thank you. And before we move on to our uh, our next guest and our musical bridge, I want to just remind you of another good friend, uh, as usual, here on Boomer Generation Radio, uh, Peter Hecht and the Hecht Investment Group of Johnny Montgomery Scott. Um, the Hecht Investment Group, as you know, provides concierge financial consulting and planning services. Uh, they use a formal investment process as their foundation. And clients receive a written plan as well as frequent communication and rapid response to all inquiries. There are no needs greater than your own when it comes to personal financial planning. And the Hecht Investment Group provides that experience guidance as well as an efficient management process that is extremely important in today's rather interesting financial environment. 
Additionally, Peter and his team can assist you in connecting to Jenny's investment banking department, which specializes in assisting middle market companies achieve their strategic goals. And a reminder that during this year, uh, the Hecht Investment Group, and we'll be talking about this when we get closer to that, will be conducting a whole series of workshops on a variety of issues, uh, social security, cybersecurity, personal security, uh, end-of-life issues of medicine. Um, so we invite you to call the Hecht Investment Group at 856-291-5028. Their toll-free number is 855-289-2168. That's 855-289-2168. Speak with John Connors for more information. And a reminder that the Hecht Investment Group is also on Twitter, LinkedIn, and on Facebook. And Johnny Montgomery Scott is a member of the New York Stock Exchange, FINRA, and the SIPC. Before we uh, move into our second segment with Dr. Goldfein from the Samaritan Healthcare and Hospice in southern New Jersey, we have lots to talk about with Dr. Goldfein about hospice issues and some current issues that are being prevalent in the end-of-life discussion. It's a kind of a cloudy, rainy day here, and uh, so I want you to kick back for our little musical bridge to perhaps seventh grade, and you're listening to that old transistor radio, and along comes this wonderful song. Sometimes we walk hand in hand by the sea, and we breathe in the cool, salty air. Turn to me with a kiss in your eyes And my heart feels a thrill beyond compare Then your lips cling to mine It's wonderful, wonderful Oh, so wonderful, my love Sometimes we stand on the top of a hill and we gaze at the earth and the sky I turn to you and you melt in my arms there we are darling only you and I what a moment to share it's wonderful wonderful
Hi, this is Kendall staff member Sheila Sylvester. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio is brought to you by Kendall, a system of not-for-profit communities and services that advocates for and empowers older adults to reach their full potential. Kendall is committed to working with others as we together transform the experience of aging. To learn more about Kendall, that's K-E-N-D-A-L, visit discoverkendall.org or call toll-free 888 888- Welcome back to our second segment here on today's edition of Boomer Generation Radio. Coming to you again from WWDB AM 860 here in Greater Philadelphia and streaming live on WWDBAM.com. And again, you can reach us at Boomer Generation Radio at gmail.com or like us on the Boomer Generation Radio Facebook page. And again, the shows are archived as podcasts on www.jewishsacredaging.com. And we are very pleased to welcome uh, again back from about a year or so ago, I think, uh, Dr. Stephen Goldfine, the Chief Medical Officer of Samaritan Healthcare and Hospice over in southern New Jersey. Dr. Goldfine, are you there? Good morning. How are you? Hi. How are you? How are you? Very good. Good to speak with you again. Pleasure to be back. Well, it's good to have you back so much <laughs> to talk about here about um, the continuing evolution of hospice and the growing awareness, really, of the need for end-of-life conversations and end-of-life discussions. Um, first of all, let's let's start with the real basics, just in case somebody has not, uh, you know, been off on the space shuttle or something. Give me the quick, down and dirty definition of hospice. Well, hospice is really a um trying to provide comfort in the last uh, period of your life. If you look at the Medicare definition, it says six months or less if your disease progresses as expected. That makes it very difficult for physicians because we don't really read the future well. It's hard for us to really do prognostication. So what I'd like to really have our families and our our patients think about is really uh, as they see a very serious life-threatening illness um, and their goals become more of a direction of comfort. So our goal is to provide comfort to those patients uh, and, and support them at home and to really try to remain at home as much as we can. This six-month thing is very fluid, is it? it am I correct in understanding that now? It, it is pretty fluid. And you know, as I said, uh, you know, I think that with our best almost guesses as pronostic prognosticators, uh, we do our best, um, you, don't, you can be on hospice longer than six months. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's important is that we see decline in that patient and really the goal of care for that family. Uh, when you enter a hospice program, the goal is really to uh, be comfortable, focus on comfort direction of care, not back and forth to the hospital, not a lot of in- interventions in terms of procedures, but really to focus on the time you have with your family and make that as best as you possibly can make it for as long as you live. Is it would it would it be correct in saying that once someone enters hospice, they move from aggressive care to comfort care? Well, I'd like to think about it as a as a as, a, as aggressive comfort care. Uh-huh. Uh, I, okay. I don't I don't really like that we're 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 leaving care because the the care we see receive from hospice is really amazing. Um, it, the amount of support, both medically as well as psychologically and physically is, is amazing. So it really is, to me, very aggressive care towards comfort as opposed to aggressive care towards cure. Yeah, I think that's – there's a whole series of myths about um, – that I keep running into uh, about hospice, you know, that somebody runs in the hospice – enters hospice, it, 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 it's – you know, everything stops. Uh, and there's a, there's a series of myths that come out about this. It, really, it, and I'm glad you clarified that, and I like that term, aggressive 
comfort care because I think that really explains a lot. Is there a is there an average stay in in hospice or is that so totally individualized? Um, it, it, it's very individualized. Unfortunately, the average stay is generally very short in the in the area of about forty to fifty days. Um, if you look at the data nationwide as well as locally, we know about. 30 to 40% of our patients uh, pass away within the first week of care. Wow. We've only in hospital for seven days. And I think that's too late in the course of illness. Uh, what happens with these patients is we can manage symptoms. But I think the, the beauty of, of hospice care is, is not just the physical medical care, but really the emotional and spiritual uh, care that we can give to these families to help them through this very difficult time. But it takes some time to develop that relationship. You know, it's hard to talk about... Um, the dying process when you meet a person for the first time. So it's really trying to develop trust and develop a relationship with those families. So uh, I think we need to do better in our country about getting people on the program earlier so we can actually provide that a really, really important emotional support. Yeah, I want to just come back to just something you just alluded to, family care. I, I think this is, I mean, I've, I mean, full disclosure, I, I, I do some volunteer work with, with Samaritan and I know f- lots of friends of mine and colleagues of mine who really are involved in local hospice um, concerns. Talk to me a little bit of the importance of not only the patient, but really working with the family, the total family, the caregivers. Yeah, so I think a lot of times, uh, you know, this is, a, this is a family experience. You know, p- death and end of life is not just an individual experience. When we look at, again, some of the data associated with how patients and families get through this, if we don't handle the, those bereavement issues, if families never have a chance to say goodbye to that loved one or have a way of, and actually the loved one have a way of leaving a legacy for that family, there's a lot of disruption uh, in their emotional health, but also their physical health. So as we look at families, um, we want to support that family. The, the beauty of hospice is that the, the, the family that's left gets 13 months of bereavement services, uh, and that can vary between uh, calls to the family members, counseling sessions, uh, remembrances at special events. Uh, and that bereavement, to me, is really the gem of hospice. There's nowhere else in medicine that you get that kind of support for that kind of period of time. I'm very sad when somebody passes away that's not on the hospice program, because mm-hmm. I know that family is not being supported through a very emotional and traumatic time. And, and whether you're you know, 30 years old or you know, 100 years old, that loss still is really an important life-changing event. And I, I think as a society, we need to make that event as good as we can make it, as comfortable as we can make it, though it's just difficult. So we need to support that family through that event. Yeah, I think that's important for people to understand that that once a person passes away, that they're just not the family isn't just left. That's really an important statement that the that Samaritan and I'm sure other hospice organizations around the world and especially in the country do provide follow up, personal relational grief support, you know, services, which is. And I want to imagine, I know that the, the spiritual component is also very, very prevalent in what hospice does as well. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, so I, I think there's, and, I, and you know, from, from being a, a counselor and seeing patients, um, when we look at, at any kind of suffering, there's a, 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 a very big spiritual component to that. Um, we have a, a very aggressive chaplain staff that gets out to the families and, and helps those families get through this. I think you have to differentiate between spiritual and religious, mm-hmm. and you can have you can have both. Uh, but the spirituality is really trying to figure out how to make some kind of sense of of this process and helping that family and, the, and that patient through it. Often, oftentimes, 
Um, what, we, what we're finding is a lot of patients are not really religious anymore, but they really have some connection to their God, whether you know it be the uh, spirit, whether it be the religion. But there's that connection that has been dis- disintegrated in the last uh, decades, I would say. So that reconnection is really important. Uh, and you know, to have a chaplaincy staff that you know can come in and talk about the, the higher levels and that spirituality is so is so important to that family getting through it and the patient actually getting through this process. Doctor Goldfein, how do you deal with individuals as they prepare to of this? Yeah, and, and I think that I'm very afraid. I'm afraid of this. Yeah, and, and I think that that's a, a very difficult issue. I I I often find patients that. Um, their bodies are beginning to fail, but their minds are very sharp. And, and those are the patients that we worry about the most. I think we have to try to make sure that um, as we address what their concerns are, what, what is causing that fear, trying to get to the bottom of that. Uh, what I found is a lot of that fear is, well, what ha- will happen to my family? Mm-hmm. What will happen to you know, my wife after I'm gone? And really trying to assure that patient that you know, the family will be cared for, um, both from a bereavement perspective, but also help that family start caring for each other and we often tell our family members you know tell dad or tell your husband that you know you'll be okay that you know and that you'll be taking care of you'll take care of each other the children will take care of each other so really trying to identify those fears and it's hard sometimes because oftentimes it's not identifiable and unfortunately because we're coming in late to the game often the patients may not have that ability to really communicate in a in a way that can help us through that um, and then also normalize the fear that it's a normal emotion um, you know, nobody really wants to die. We don't, you know, we don't have a real good definition of death in this country. Uh, and what we have to do is try to make sure that's a more normalized kind of conversation. It also helps with our palliative care program if we can get involved in these patients ahead of time. Uh, and palliative care is an, an offshoot of hospice. That it's a team of uh, physicians and practitioners that provides uh, conversations about goals of care. And oftentimes, if we can establish a good goal of care for that patient, that fear kind of diminishes. The the phrase quality of life comes up a lot in these conversations, and um, I'm sure you deal with it. I know, and, you know, clergy deal with it on a regular basis in counseling families and individuals, especially in the de- around decision making at the end of life, but regardless of the religious tradition. Could you just talk to me a little bit how what that phrase comes to mean in the day to day work of the hospice? Sure. So, so I think the way I approach most, most of my patients, I ask them, what is your definition of quality? What things that you do day to day, you know, bring you enjoyment? Um, and it's interesting what you hear from patients. They don't really think about that quality, that definition. Um, I always try to tell stories to my families about, you know, how you make these decisions and how you define quality. Uh, and I always use myself because I think it's important. When I did my advanced directives, when I talked to my family about what is quality to me, I like to talk, I like to communicate, I like to interact with my family. If there comes a time when that is not able to be done, if either, God forbid, I have a stroke or I have a venting illness, I just want to be kept comfortable at that time. So I've made that definition of quality for me. When I ask patients, I say, well, what is important to you? What day-to-day do you enjoy doing? Is it talking to your family? Is it you know, gardening? What is that definition? And now let's take our plan of care and try to allow you to have that kind of quality. And everybody's definition is a little bit different, and we want to honor that that difference uh, for those patients. We're speaking with Dr. Stephen Goldfein, the Chief Medical Officer of Samaritan Healthcare and Hospice, located in southern New Jersey. And um, when we get back from this little break from our friends at Kendall, I want to I want to 
ask you about this idea you just alluded to, Dr. Goldfein, the development of a family care plan and uh, sort of like end-of-life plan and what's going on now in the country. And this raise, seems to be a, ra- a extremely raised awareness of the need for this. We'll do that right after this message from our friends at Kendall. Hi, this is Kendall resident Harry Hammond. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio was brought to you by Kendall a system of not-for-profit communities and services in eight states that advocates for and empowers older adults to reach their full potential. Please join us in together transforming the experience of aging. To learn more about Kendall, that's K-E-N-D-A-L, visit discoverkendall.org or call toll-free 888-759-0128. Welcome back to our second segment here on Boomer Generation Radio. We're speaking with Dr. Stephen Goldfein, Chief Medical Officer of Samaritan Healthcare and Hospice. Uh, who also was a good friend of the shows, and um, we thank uh, Dr. Goldfein for, for his time and expertise here this morning. We're speaking about hospice care. Uh, first of all, real fast, Dr. Goldfein, the, the people want to find out something more about Samaritan. The, the website is what, and the phone number is what? So it's www.samaritan, S-A-M-A-R-I-T-A-N-N-J dot O-R-G. And the 800 number is 800-229-8183. Thank you. So on the last week, I've had the pleasure of uh, giving some programs at two or three congregations uh, in New Jersey. And this issue always comes up. In fact, it was part of one or two of the presentations themselves. And I always ask informally, how many of you have advanced directives? And interestingly enough, in the last couple of presentations, well over 50% of the people, in, in, in one case, close to 90% of the people, raised their hand. Um, I sense that there's a change, and I think maybe it, maybe it's being developed by the boomers who are very, very much more aware of the need to have what we all now call the conversation, especially since we dealt with our parents' generation who really very rarely had any conversation about my wishes where it was formalized and documented and, and, and made available. What's go, are you sensing this? Are you seeing this too, Dr. Goldfein, in your work? With, what's going on? Yeah, so it's, it's interesting. I, I had a, the pleasure of speaking to a, um, a hospital uh, uh, group a couple of weeks ago. And, and in healthcare workers, I don't find a lot of movement. But I do, I do agree with you. I do find that uh, the boomer generation is taking this much more seriously. Uh, I think the big change has been... Um, understand that these documents are, are not necessarily a negative document, but mm-hmm. are a positive document, as opposed to saying what you don't want, saying what you do want. And I think that that change has really made a big difference in trying to develop, you know, good quality documentations. I think programs like our palliative care program, some of the hospice programs have really been uh, reaching out to the community to make sure we're, we're, we're having those conversations. So I think it is changing, and, I, and I, I'm surprised by your numbers. I'm, I'm ex- excited by your numbers. Um, when I speak to physician groups and nurse part, nurses, nursing groups, it's actually not much lower, and you would think it really? would be the opposite. Yeah, Yeah, I, I frankly was surprised. I mean, these are totally informal, you know, there's gr- about 50 people at a 60, 65 people at a program on a Sunday morning, and and you know, it just—I I basically say I'm going to take an informal, non-scientific survey, and it's—I sense that my feeling is that that two things: one, boomers want really a lot more control, even over at the end of our life, and B, we saw it's happened to some of our parents when there were no documentation. 
the, Samaritan has this program called Timely Conversations, um, which I think really folk tries to focus people on this. What 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 is what is Timely Conversations? Yeah, so, so I think you're right. We're really trying to, to focus people on having these conversations, not really at the last moment of life, not in the hospital, not in the intensive care unit when it becomes a critical, emergent kind of discussion, but really trying to move it back further downstream a little bit. And, you know, we, we're talking about like a three-step approach. One is really think about it. The other is talk about it. And the other is act about it. Uh, so really trying to think about what your wishes actually are, trying to get that conversation going, um, in real time, at a time when there's no crisis brewing, so we always talk about having it around the kitchen table or the Thanksgiving table. Um, I always make a joke that my family doesn't like to talk to me at the table anymore because I'm going to bring these things up. And you know, <laughs> so but 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 really trying to have those conversations in, in a time when it's not a crisis moment, um, and you know, think about what your wishes are, and then start talking about it in a in a in a logical way or even emotional way, but you know, in in a non-crisis way. And then finally, you know bringing documents together and putting them into some sort of a formal documentation, which I, I think is the hardest part about that. Patients, you know, oftentimes will, will think about what their wishes are. They'll kind of talk with their family a little bit, but then when it comes to writing it down, they get a little bit nervous. Um, the important part of these, of these documents is that as long as you have the ability to talk, to talk and express your wishes, the documents don't take any – have no control. It's only when you cannot speak for yourself is when the documents take over. I think that's a very important issue to understand. And, and this weekend, I mean, we're, we're, this is um, April the 12th, and um, this weekend is National Healthcare Decision Day. And we, we, a couple of years ago, we had the, the gentleman, Nathan Conkamp, on the show uh, discussing how this came about. And it's just really taken off. It, it's really a day focused. It's obviously the day after income tax day, which has a relevance all of its own. The... Um, it's really an attempt to focus the consciousness of of our of America on hey you you really have to deal with having these conversations so the but in your experience as you walk through the and and work with groups remind everybody this is not just something that happens you know okay we're going to sit down and do this um you know one day this is a process isn't it having this conversation it sometimes takes weeks and sometimes months for people to really get used to the fact that we're going to talk about this. I think you're exactly right, and it's not, as again, as a, as a palliative care physician, hospice physician, I get called in to, to fix things at the very end. <laughs> but, I, but I tell my families and my patients, these are conversations that you should have over your lifetime, actually, not, not just you know, when you're a boomer generation, not just when you're middle age, but even starting as early as your 20s, begin to, to, to normalize the conversation about what things would look like for you, and it, it'll change over your lifetime. So at 20, you might say, do everything. You know, at 30, maybe it changes a little bit more, and then at 50, it changes again, and then at 80, it changes again. But having that normalization over an entire lifetime so that it becomes common discussion points about really what your wishes are, are my documents up to date, you know, what, would I, what is my quality of life definition, and really having that over a period of time. It, it does take many hours to sit down with a family and bring them from, I want everything done, to... Let's just focus on comfort and hospice care. So trying our best to, you know, really not get into that crisis moment is important. And just to pick up on that, then it's also important to, to uh, every several years reevaluate if you have written down your advanced directive and healthcare proxy. Because, like you just said, right, it, it, you may write this down at 65, but when you get to be 75, you may have changed your mind about something. And also, medical technology can impact those decisions, can it not? 
Absolutely. And what we're finding, especially in, in kind of the cancer world, you know, the medicines are getting a lot safer, um, a lot less toxic. So people are, are beginning to do maybe a little bit more treatment than maybe not. Uh, but I think that about every five years, you should reevaluate these documentations or at the, di- or at the beginning of uh, any serious life-threatening illness. So when mm-hmm. you're diagnosed with a cancer process or, you know, heart attack, that's a good time to sort of, sort of pull up the documents and kind of dust them off and, and review them. The, um, there's, a, there's a vocabulary, too, that it's emerging um, around end-of-life decision-making. I mean, it, people know about an advanced directive, and then and more and more people are understanding the need for a healthcare proxy. So you would designate several people, uh, not just one person, but several people who can are empowered to make a decision for you if you can't. But there's, also, there's something else called a pulse, P-O-L-S-T. What, what is that? So it's it's a, a new documentation, new form that was brought out several years ago, and that's its, it's title is Practitioner Order for Life-Sustaining Treatments, and it really takes the advanced directive and puts it into a an order form, so that if you have completed a post, if you move from environment to environment, so you go from the hospital to a rehab center or rehab center to home, it that those wishes follow you through. So if you say, I don't want to be on a breathing machine in the hospital, you get to the rehab center, it follows you through into that environment. And it helps to really clarify your wishes. Pulse were intended for people that are in the last about two years of their life um, to really help us with those decision-making. And so let me ask you, these documents, somebody who has no idea where to get them, can they get them through Samaritan? They can, and on our website we have the five wishes available, so there are, there are many ways to do that. Uh, I always like to have patients speak with their physicians about this. I, I do believe this is a medical, uh, social conversation, not a legal conversation. Um, a lot of our, our lawyers will do these documents for you, but to me it's about you know trying to make sure that the medicine makes sense to that particular patient. So I really would encourage people to go on our website, pull off the five wishes, but go to their doctors too, their family doctors, and really have good conversations about what treatments really look like for them, what does CPR look like, uh, and, how, and how will that affect their lives and their quality of life. And once again, real because we're going to start to run out of time pretty soon, the um, um, website and phone number. So the website is www.samaritan.org, 1-800-229-8183. So you write out these documents and you work with uh, everybody. Where do you put these documents? I, I would always say you put them as close to your body as possible. Mm-hmm. So we talk about the refrigerator at home. Um, I would make sure there's copies um, with your family physician, copies in your glove compartment of your car, copies with your lawyer, copies with your family. Uh, and I'll put in a plug for you should also make sure your clergy has one. And Great. But but as we say whenever I do the workshop on end-of-life decision, don't stick them in the safe deposit box. Correct. Uh, because that's the worst place to put them. Uh, exactly. They're, 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 they're no use there, exactly. So um, real quickly at the end, I know Samaritan is very, very involved with a series of organizations uh, in southern New Jersey, including my own Jewish Sacred Aging, uh, on April 27th about previewing a film featuring Dr. Atal Gawande based upon his book Being Mortal, um, which is a brilliant book that everybody should be reading Talk to. Could you just uh, give us a little plug about that that movie? What is that movie about? Yeah, so it's it's about an hour long. Um, it came off of I believe Nightline. It's it's he basically 
interviews physicians and patients about how they go through the decision and, and the struggle with that. I think it's it's very very well done. It's very emotional. You see the struggle of of, a, of the physicians making these having these discussions. The patients kind of focus on quality of life. It, it, it brings up a lot of. Um, great talking points. And I think as you screen the, the film, there's about a half an hour discussion afterwards about, you know, the motions that the the audience uh, saw, what they're thinking. And really, again, it comes back to how do we define our quality of life? How do we define that end-of-life process for uh, for patients and for their families? And as physicians, how do we emotionally handle uh, some of those issues, too? Then I know there's going to be a screening in Cherry Hill at Congregation McCor Shalom on the 27th of April, which I think is a Wednesday, or I think it's a Wednesday night, um, and I think it's like at seven or seven thirty. But you can check that out at the Samaritan website. I'm sure there's publicity, and the synagogue is four two four four two two zero eight five six. If you want more information, but the the book is brilliant, and I'm looking forward to to being there and watching the film with uh, as many people as possible from the community. So uh, as we're wrapping up, Dr. Goldfein, I want to thank you very, very much for your time and knowledge and so much information. Dr. Stephen Goldfein, Chief Medical Officer of Samaritan Healthcare and Hospice. Again, it's uh, SamaritanNJ.org, SamaritanNJ.org, and the 800 number is 800-229-8183. Dr. Goldfein, thank you very much. Uh, continued success in all this wonderful work that you're doing. Uh, I appreciate it very much. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. You take care. To all of you, listen, stay dry and uh, stay safe out there today. And we'll look forward to seeing you next Tuesday morning, as usual, 10 a.m. here on Boomer Generation Radio, WWDB AM 860, WWDBAM.com. Take care, everyone.